Welcome, guys, to the JPS podcast. And we have a very special guest today, all the way from Canada, uh, Mr. Jeff Nippard. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me, man. So Jeff is a natural pro bodybuilder and elite level powerlifter. He has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and he's got a podcast on training and nutrition and is fast becoming quite the YouTube sensation uh, as well as an online coach. And what Jeff does is apply the science to training and nutrition in an excellent manner Whilst he started with Taekwondo at an early age, he's now become one of the leading uh, natural bodybuilders in uh, the industry. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Jeff, one, nice of the, intro. one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, how did you fall into the fitness industry? Obviously, your mum and dad were bodybuilders and had been lifting, uh, and you've been lifting since an early age, but... Did this have a positive or you know a negative influence on you when you were younger? Definitely positive. Um, I guess when I was really young, like in my early teens, I thought it was really weird that my dad would have like bodybuilding magazines around. Like, couldn't figure out why my dad like looking at you know images of, of dudes soiled up and, and all this kind of thing. And I, I just used to make fun of him for it, um, not knowing a few years later I'd really get enthralled in myself. So. Um, once I got over that initially, I think I was just really interested in it. And the influence of my parents has been huge in terms of my success. My mom and dad both still train probably five times a week uh, awesome. into their 50s. And they've been living that lifestyle for like 20, 30 years. Uh, so when you grow up around that, it's just really easy to kind of take that on. And they sort of like showed me the ropes mm. early on. I trained with both my mom and my dad uh, as a teenager. So yeah, it's great to have that support from your family. And of course, they always were supportive of my uh, competitive aspirations too. Like they would always come to my competitions. And even though they never competed themselves, mm. uh, they both probably could have if they wanted to. For sure. And it's always a good thing getting into the gym at an early age, in my opinion, because it just builds the foundations for so many positive things. And when you started lifting, your uh, intentions and your goals in the gym weren't necessarily to be as jacked as possible. From uh, what I have heard you say in other podcasts in the past, and it, you started out to improve your vertical leap, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm. When did you... Uh, yeah, yeah. transition to training for aesthetics and you know when was that moment when you realized hey I don't want to I don't really care about how high I can jump anymore I just want to get jacked yeah uh, I wouldn't say there was like a defining moment when that changed but it was probably just over the course of me sort of like falling out of love with basketball and falling in love with like the iron itself I guess <laughs> Um, and it was really about, it really did become about aesthetics for me. Um, after that, it, it wasn't about like, I didn't want to, I didn't care about strength. I didn't have any desire to power lift or anything like that. I just wanted to get as jacked as I could. I basically wanted to look like a bodybuilder, like the guys in the magazines, essentially. Um, and I wasn't aware of natural bodybuilding then. Of course, I didn't realize that mm. the physiques I were looking up to were mostly enhanced. Um, it was sort of later that I got involved in the, the natural sphere, but um, I think that basically I had wanted to play college basketball all through junior high school. Um, in high school, 
in Canada, uh, especially Newfoundland, Canada, there isn't a whole lot of potential there to, to play college or to go pro, especially when you're five five. So um, I realized that I was better suited for a different sport, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started weight training more or less to improve my abilities as a basketball player, but started to realize I can build muscle more easily than I can you know, on basketball. So um, sometimes you have to just pursue what it is that uh, your strengths are in line with. And that was basically what I did. So to answer your question, I guess that was probably like late high school, maybe early university. So I was probably like 17 to 18. And then I did my first show. I got on stage when I was 19. Awesome. And yeah. What are some of the elements of bodybuilding that attract you to it besides being, you know, um, genetically from a height standpoint and in terms of building muscle, you know, besides being, you know, more uh, driven towards excelling at those things, what were some of the other things that drew you to bodybuilding? I think, I think I like the fact that it was sort of like a solo endeavor like you were in complete control of your results. I mean, yeah. given your, your starting point, you, you yeah. basically determine where you end up. Right. Uh, which I really liked. Um, I also was involved in martial arts at a really young age. So I feel like that kind of carved me out as a very disciplined athlete. Mm -hmm. So even though it's become a little bit cliched within the community, initially I really did, um, I guess, enjoy that, that grind that's associated mm -hmm. with it. It's like a challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you don't necessarily appreciate it until after you've done it. But even my first go through, I recognize that a lot of people might not be able to commit to this and actually follow through until the end. And so I guess it's those little psych uh, cause me to fall in love with it, I suppose. Um, but I also just do really love the training aspect mm -hmm. of it. And I do like the artistic side of it. Um, I like the, I like watching it. I'm a fan of the sport and mm -hmm. had been for some time. Um, and then I also have always been, if not a scientist, at least scientifically minded. And so I was always trying to figure out what different people were doing. One of the things that like really, really intrigued me for the longest time, because I wasn't familiar with scientific literature at the time, was that you'd have people doing such different training approaches. Like you'd have Branch Warren training like a freaking animal with terrible form, insanely high volume, insanely heavy weights. And then you'd have other guys like Dorian Yates who would train mm. very strict with like slower cadences, very low volume, very high intensity. And yet they both had like the same physique and you'd get guys getting results with all kinds of different methods. And I was just trying to like delineate what is the common variable there. And so like even early as a bodybuilder, I was sort of enthralled with like the scientific side of things, um, which has of course grown like mm. crazy uh, in the intervening time. So nice. um, just, just, just before we got on the call, I, I just, just to see out of curiosity, because I was doing a little bit of, uh, of research into some case studies and stuff. Um, and I looked into PubMed how many studies would show up if you just search bodybuilding. And it's 799. Wow. Almost 800 studies in PubMed on no bodybuilding, way. which is absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it sounds like bodybuilding that's a, that's has brought together a number of different uh, you know, facets uh, of life that you enjoy, you know, the creativity, the science, um, you know, the discipline and all of these other things. And I think that's a brilliant thing that it's been able to do that for you. But you've also done some powerlifting in there, which is quite different uh, to bodybuilding in a number of senses. Um, 
And do you feel that your powerlifting made you a better bodybuilder? That's a good question. Um, I think that if it did help, it was more so probably you know psychological, like keeping me motivated, uh, keeping me goal oriented in my long sort of breaks. You know, I didn't take really long breaks, but in my off seasons, it sort of gave me a competitive outlet. And as a competitive person, I feel like that can be important. Training can get really stagnant when you're just doing, you know, eight to 12 reps of X, Y, Z machine work. When you incorporate some powerlifting in there, specifically competitive powerlifting, Mm. it can be really motivating as a bodybuilder. Um, other than that, I did notice quite a bit of increased density for lack of a better word in say uh, my chest as a result of the bench pressing, especially my like spinal erector area. Mm. I feel like it really thickened up my Mm. lower back, um, all the deadlifting and squatting. My quads definitely came up. Um, and I think my glutes as well. I did. I was a sumo deadlifter, and I think I, when I really had that technique dialed in, I was getting a lot of glute work. Um, so those muscle parts definitely. Um, but who's to say that I've been training for about eleven years now? Mm. It would be tough for me to say I wouldn't have gotten the same results if I hadn't competed in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and maybe I would have gotten you know better results because, as you know, like as you go into a, a powerlifting competition generally volume tends to decrease you tend to get more specific with the lifts you know the intensity can even taper off that isn't really the same way you'd structure a bodybuilding program at all um so the goals are a little bit discongruous when you get close to competition prep Mm -hmm. but generally speaking i don't think it would have made i mean like when you just consider how much goes into what a physique ends up looking like. Like you have these massive genetic factors. You have the nutritional variables, how long you've been training, like whether you power lift for a couple months in your off season or whatever, I don't think it's going to make a world of difference. Yeah, Yeah. I definitely agree. And I think on that powerlifting uh, can go uh, hand in hand with bodybuilding. And for some bodybuilders, it can teach them a lot of valuable lessons in terms of fatigue management, you know, following structured programs, um, and all these sorts of things. And obviously in powerlifting, you know, the squat, bench, and deadlift are staples, but do you still incorporate these into a hypertrophy program, Jeff? And do you feel that they're necessary, um, you know, for hypertrophy? Yeah, I definitely incorporate extra, like, quote-unquote hypertrophy work. I mean, like, mm-hmm. everything. But if, if there's anything that the current literature on training tells us, is that, like, pretty much everything leads to hypertrophy as long as you're training at, like, a sufficient level of effort, right? Um, so those lifts in and of themselves are, would be considered hypertrophy work. I would add in extra, like, bodybuilding work. Say, you know, I would always keep, like, lateral raises, um, rear delt, specific rear delt work, lat work. It's, it's relatively easy to recover from. It's not like it's really going to take away from the amount of squat volume you can do by throwing in some like lap ones or whatever, right? So it just makes sense to throw that stuff in. But there definitely were phases of my training where I was very much a power lifter. And if I skipped some of those accessories, then I would do that because I really cared about putting my everything into my squat bench and deadlift. And that was back when I was competing at a national level, international level. And that was... Was, that was kind of was at that point. I kind of changed changed paths and sort of mm-hmm. come back full circle uh, lately. And um, and then what was the other question? Uh, do you need to do those lifts? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely don't think so. But if you can, I think you should. Especially the squat. I, I feel like the squat is just such a staple. You should include it in any program uh, if you can. It's so good for 
for quad development and lower back development and just general strength so you can push yourself harder on other leg movements. Um, and the bench press, I still do uh, at least once a week, oftentimes twice a week. I'll do like a wide grip and a close grip variation. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's been really critical to my, my chest development, like I said, and even just upper body strength generally. They're good lifts, so they I, are can't, good lifts. I can't hate on them. But <laughs> if you're injured or you know, if, if your anthropometry is such that yeah. the lifts are really like just a pain for you to perform or something like that, then you absolutely don't have to do them. Mm-hmm. There are tons of bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders, who've built up their physiques over the years without doing those lifts. So it certainly can be done. For sure. And there's definitely a high risk involved in those lifts, especially if you aren't, as you mentioned, anthropometrically suited to them or you're uh, you know, struggling with the technique. And you've recently injured your back. And before we get into some uh, more specific bodybuilding-related questions, I wanted to just ask you uh, about that, Jeff. How is your recovery coming along um, with your lower back? And how's the deadlift uh, and reincorporating that into your program uh, tracking for your current goals? Jacob, I actually missed that question because you uh, glitched out on mine. I'm not sure if it's my Wi-Fi or yours, but maybe you could just ask that one again if you don't mind. For sure. So obviously there's a high risk involved with uh, the, you know, the big three, more specifically the deadlift, and you haven't been able to deadlift for a while and you're reintroducing that. Do you feel that uh, the deadlift could have been something that was out of your program to uh reduce the risk of in getting injured and potentially uh, impacting your ability to make gains? Or do you feel like that it's necessary and it was just an unfortunate event? Yeah, I think it was some, I guess, for lack of a better word, careless programming mm-hmm. um, on, on my part. Um, I think that a deadlift can certainly be safely included. Mm-hmm. You just really have to consider how you're managing your fatigue. And I think that with the frequencies that I was deadlifting at, even though the intensities were very low, um, it was still not enough for my body to recover adequately. So yeah, I, I would definitely wouldn't say that one should exclude deadlifting from the programming altogether. If I were to go back, I would simply just monitor my recovery with it more carefully. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically I think that it can have a lot of merit for a bodybuilder. I definitely mm-hmm. would include it. You just have to be more careful with it and pay attention to the warning signs. Um, I think that basically what happened to me, I was just doing it too frequently, perhaps with a little bit too much volume. Um, and I sort of ignored some warning signs and that's really common, especially in younger powerlifters mm-hmm. who become very numerically focused, right? They become yeah. very, uh, dedicated to like achieving a certain result, whether that's like a national record or just setting a PR at a certain, you know, rate, uh, as frequently as you can, I suppose in some cases. So, um, that was sort of the trap that I fell into. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's the kind of, that's the kind of situation where you can get caught up in, in injuries, but it's a lot smarter to just like pay attention to your body, really pay attention to those warning signs and take it slow, especially as a power lifter. Like I really do, and I've said this before, but I really think that success in power lifting is really just a function of not getting injured and just slowly progressing over the years. And you could have like, and this happens all the time, you'll have like an outstanding junior lifter who just completely ruins their powerlifting future because of a herniated disc or something like that. So uh, you definitely have to be careful with it. But for all that, it should be included, you know, if you can do it. 
Definitely agree. Uh, powerlifting is a sport where, you know, those who can uh, chip away over time are typically going to get the result and the scores on the board. So let's talk about bodybuilding, Jeff. You take a scientific approach to bodybuilding, and I wanted to ask you why it is you feel that this is the best approach, and how do you stay up to date with all the current literature? As you mentioned, you know, you mm -hmm. just did a quick search on bodybuilding. There's over 700 uh, studies currently uh, done on bodybuilding. How do you stay up to date and how do you find what's relevant um, mm -hmm. to practice without, you know, becoming esoteric and spending too much time in the books as opposed to practicing? Right. And I think you kind of nailed it there. It's like there's a middle ground between getting so caught up in the data and then maybe just dismissing things that have just been found to work mm -hmm. over time, like in the field. And there is especially, I mean, it's kind of true in any field, but especially in, in bodybuilding where it is such a niche, even though there's, you know, 800 studies on it, it's, it's still not well studied enough to be able to make actual coaching calls just based on the literature alone. It's, there's just too many gaps in it. Um, so you definitely have to find the two, um, but I think their evidence-based approach or, or what have you is the best way to go um, because it can kind of, it can rule out things that, you know, are not effective. Like mm -hmm. we have a pretty good idea that like fasted cardio probably doesn't, you know, do a whole lot more, if anything more than doing it fed um, because there enough, there's enough research on that to, to kind of know. And it just allows you to, in general, um, create just a better understanding of the big picture it, like it gives you like a fundamental mm -hmm. understanding of what's going on it's like sometimes i'll get questions from people that are just misplaced it's like that's not the right question to be asking you can tell they're just not familiar with the scientific literature like you'll be like should i have low glycemic or high glycemic carbs after my workout it's like eh, that kind of misses the whole point it's like the, the right question is like do carbs benefit post-workout mm -hmm. at all? Does post-workout nutrition even really matter? Yeah. Those are the kinds of questions that you see in the scientific literature, right? And if you're familiar with it, then you know how to ask the right questions, which I think is the starting place. Um, in my case, I kind of, in a sense, uh, take the literature just as a starting place, and then I really do take into consideration you know, what has worked for me mm -hmm previously, what has worked for this guy who had really good results. And then as long as you're considering all of these things with a skeptical eye or like a critical eye. And you say, okay, this meal plan where, you know, he, he ate grapefruit every meal or whatever worked really well for him, but it might not be that because you know that correlation and causation are not always inextricably linked, right? So you can kind of like tease out the things that might be actually um, doing the work and things that aren't. And that doesn't have to be only based on scientific literature. It can just be based on looking at things critically in general, which yeah. is what I try to do the best I can. That's a brilliant explanation of um, you know applying the science to training because it is multifaceted. It isn't just the science being, you know, being the be all end all. It's very much yeah. experience and what happens, you know, in, you know, mm. with the person. And there's, been some discussion of late on the consequences of natural bodybuilding um, in terms of both physiological changes during a contest prep as well as the psychological changes. Now, I wanted to get your uh, experience when you compete. You know, they've had a couple of case studies where they've looked at Peter Fishin and Rosso et al. in 2013 uh, followed a subject uh, for six months before the contest and then six months after. 
and they noticed some pretty disturbing, well, not disturbing, <laughs> but some pretty serious changes happening uh, in a bodybuilding contest prep. And I wanted to um, hear how it affects you because obviously, you know, individual difference, everybody responds differently to, you know, protocols and so forth. So Jeff, how does bodybuilding affect you in terms of, you know, your mood, your energy levels and, you know, your psyche mentally and all those kind of things? Yeah, I, I would say I'm pretty standardly in line with the results found in those studies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know of many people who don't experience those things. Mm. Um, there are a few genetic anomalies who seem like they can just compete every year and yeah, yeah they feel like a little bit crappier, but it's nothing uh, too extreme. Um, yeah. I don't fall into that camp. Um, yeah. I feel like most people really have to grind to get lean enough uh, to get ready for competition. Um, what I am kind of blessed in, I guess, is I can stay pretty lean, like the beach lean or whatever. I can like look good in my off season quite easily, yeah. and I can get away with eating more than most people. Um, so it swings well for me in that direction, but it also swings really badly for me in the other direction. Where if I have to try to dig below like eight percent, mm -hmm. um, each fraction of a percentage is like fighting tooth and nail yeah um so that's basically how i feel but yeah i definitely more specifically will notice um changes in mood like higher levels of fatigue um depression um confusion uh, all the typical things that, that you see um i'll also notice like a strong decline in energy like just doing daily tasks it's pretty common sleep disturbances uh very high um a lot of people experience reproduction in testosterone um that was i think in FOS it went down like 70 percent or something like that it uh, was testosterone like dropped yeah uh 75 percent <clears throat> i have the numbers here it went from 9.2 nanograms per milliliter to 2.2 so yeah, it went way down. And based on my experience with just like coaching and everything, I feel like that's pretty standardly true uh, for for naturals who really get stage lean. Yeah. Um, for guys who compete in say like men's physique, I've talked to more guys who don't necessarily do that because they don't have to quite get mm. as shredded as bodybuilders do. Yeah, we could argue that maybe some guys, men, some some men's physique guys certainly do, but. For guys who have, say, like a difficult time getting their, their legs to come in, yeah. um, like myself, competing in men's physique, I feel like, would be a bit easier. I may not have to suffer as much. Um, but yeah, most guys see that drop in testosterone and then corresponding drop in libido. Um, and then... That's never a good thing. What else is there? Yeah, it's not good. And honestly, like, m most times that will come back once the weight is regained. Yeah. But I've... I've known some guys who they, it doesn't seem to really come back or at least takes a really long time. And I've known guys yeah. who've had to go to t testosterone replacement therapy mm. uh, just to counteract the effect of the cannabis prep. And that's pretty serious. Yeah. Like that's a pretty big life decision. It means you can't compete as a natural anymore. Um, so that's probably, as a male, um, a pretty big concern of mine. And I would say that would be one of the biggest deterrents because – even though in the literature it's always been shown to be reversible, in my experience it, it may not necessarily be. 
so that's the case where I think that <clears throat> when you get really deep in a contest prep and you're just completely driven towards the stage, you may have to ask yourself, <clears throat> what is worth getting that extra half a percent of body fat off of me? And you know, how much am I willing to let this play into important aspects of my personal life? For sure. I think uh, having the awareness of these ramifications uh, is extremely important for anyone looking to embark in a contest prep and the, you know make that decision to get on stage because it isn't all you know abs and you know your budgie smugglers. It's there's some serious mm-hmm. things that happen uh, when we get in, into contest shape. And my next question to Jeff was, you know, so obviously there are some uncontrollables there, you know, such as testosterone levels and cortisol levels, some things that we can't really, you know, change physiologically. But what are some ways that you deal with these in your contest prep? You know, obviously stress goes up. So how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's a a bunch of things that you can do to kind of like lessen the effects, but Mm -hmm. ultimately they're probably going to happen. So maybe one key thing is just to be aware of it ahead of time um, and find ways to manage your stress. Um, Just rolling with stress, for example, I find that being really prepared really helps. So like um, if you have to make a lot of decisions during the day, like having all of having a a bit more structure maybe than normal uh, to your, your bodybuilding specific tasks, uh, maybe if, maybe of use, especially if you're like a very busy person. So like having your doing meal prep, like doing the bro things, like a lot of flexible dieters, just like completely freestyle their food, but like that can take up a lot of time. And if you're a busy person with like, say a high stress job or something like that, that can just be extra decision making that you don't necessarily need. Um, so I will sometimes get a little bit more robotic with things, maybe like put some meals in Tupperware, uh, have maybe the same basic structure for my day and just leave like a meal or two open-ended uh, each day if I want to treat myself with something uh, or what have you. But I feel like having that structure uh, is really important. Um, I found meditation to be helpful uh, on my prep. So not like sitting down and going hum, like, you know what I mean? Not like that kind of meditation, but just um, I used an app, it's called Calm, and it's basically just like short 10 to 15 minute walkthroughs of kind of just like noticing your sensations in the moment, and that can kind of help you identify with what is going on as it happens, like as your body kind of changes. Yeah. Um, I found that to be helpful, but uh, just general things about like, you know, planning out your day uh, earlier in the morning and just being aware of the fact that like your decision making abilities may not be as fine-tuned the deeper you get into it so you might have to give yourself more time or maybe even like cut down on your workload so that you have less on your plate Um, and then certainly for peak week you want to have everything as organized as possible because I feel like a very underestimated aspect of peak week is organization and just being mentally ready a lot of people stress out like crazy and then they're rushing last minute to get everything together and all their stuff for the stage like have that ready well ahead of time Mm -hmm. so you can just cruise in be relaxed you're completely prepared um, and that can help control the stress but like you said you know cortisol is going to go up testosterone is going to go down and generally you know especially as a male that feels pretty crappy so some some great tips there jeff and one of the other uh impacts of a contest prep is a large reduction in strength so in terms of your training how do you manage um, you know the strength decline in the gym you know Mm -hmm. what variables do you change to ensure that you uphold 
you know, the amount of volume that you need to maintain your muscle um, as not to, you know, lose lean body mass during, you know, prolonged periods of calorie restriction. Right. This is where I might differ from some people. Um, I feel like a lot, like a lot of people will fall into one of two camps. Like they'll either say you need to maintain your volume when you prep for as long as you can, or you need to maintain the weight on the bar and then you can decrease the volume. That's fine. Um, if I was to fall into either of those two, I would probably fall into the weight on the bar group and let volume be decreased just because there is some literature showing that you can reduce volume by quite a lot, like more than 50% and still maintain your adaptations yeah. uh, that you, it basically takes a lot less volume to maintain a given adaptation. So in this case, m muscle growth than yeah. uh, to build it to begin with basically. Um, so I think that you can drop the volume. I'm more skeptical that if you drop the intensity, uh, it would hang around because I feel like it would just be a less of a tension stimulus for yes. muscle, which is what I think is, is really the most important. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is even more important than that is just effort and I'll say like relative efforts, yeah. like specific yeah. to you, like how hard are you pushing yourself on your sets? And a lot of people might really like tone back on how hard they're exerting themselves because they feel kind of crappy, like we said, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I think it would be better to just do a little bit less and continue to push yourself hard on at least one set mm -hmm. uh, of, of every body part. And I think that that's probably the best way to maintain your muscle. Um, so I kind of, I mean, I do my best to uphold my strength the best I can, and that just comes through sound programming. You need to keep some heavy, heavy weight in there, basically, uh, to keep it. Um, but in all the literature I've seen, there's always been a reduction in strength. So, uh, and in every person I think I've coached, I've seen a reduction in strength, unless they're like really new or like they've never done powerlifting before, something like that. Almost everyone will lose strength um, when, especially as they get more advanced. So uh, you kind of have to accept it and like not let it frustrate you too much. Mm. Like you have to consider the fact that like genetics plays a huge role. Like mm. I don't know, at least fifty percent probably. Nutrition plays a huge role in how you look. How many years have you already? been training like are you training like generally intelligently like you know a couple times a week you're hitting every body part in some way or another you're pushing yourself reasonably hard how much of a difference is it going to make if your squat drops from like your squat one rep max drops from like 405 to 365 or something yeah. like a lot of people will really get psychologically yeah. burdened from that yeah. but in reality do you think that everyone on stage is squatting 405 and it, like yeah. A lot of these people in the shows who are standing next to you might have a better physique than you might have never squatted in their life. So, like, it really is such a small piece of the puzzle that, like, you have to put it in perspective and then not let it derail the rest of your training or much less your entire psychological outlook on your prep because your strength is dropping. It's like, eh, <laughs> yeah. it'll come back. It pretty, much, it pretty much does come back. I mean, that's arguable because in, in Rousseau, as you may know, his strength six didn't months. fully recover after six months. But mm -hmm. I feel like that could have been – I mean, like, in the six-month follow-up, I feel like they were a little less controlled with how they did their measurements and stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like that could have been – like, he might have just been freestyling his programming yeah. in the follow-up or something, right? Like, it's not yeah. – it's not like it's a scientifically like established fact that like your strength doesn't recover. I generally find with my clients and with myself that once the weight recovers, mm -hmm. strength you know is fairly quick to follow up, provided your training is the same. You didn't get injured or anything like that. I've yeah. definitely I've definitely seen the same uh, with myself and clients as well. That strength does come back uh, with body weight uh, after contest prep. Now let's talk about that, Jeff, because. It's, as you know, it's been uh, debated online whether or not, you know, uh, the reverse diet, which is the stepwise increase of calories 
after a contest prep is a you know feasible and you know good way to you know come out of a contest prep and in comparison to what 3DMJ have you know now proposed which is the recovery diet what has been your typical approach in the past and do you feel like um, what do you think the objective is after a contest prep should people just gain back their weight as quickly as possible or should they slowly increase calories or is this context dependent yeah, of course. <laughs> but I mean, like, it, it really does depend on the person. Like, historically, yeah. I've always embraced the mindset that I don't really care if I gain a lot of fat. I actually prefer the way I look, especially in clothes when I'm a little bit, like, yeah. heavier. So, like, in contest prep, I find, like, I can't even barely fit into a small shirt. And, like, I don't really like that. Natty problems. Always, yeah, exactly. Like, always looked up to, you know, bodybuilders in the magazines and stuff like that. So I'd rather look like I lift mm -hmm. when I'm around. So I'd rather put on the weight more quickly. Um, some people really like to maintain that shredded look, and that's maybe more appealing to them and maybe more in line with their mm -hmm. reason for doing this to begin with. Like, I find, find this is especially the case, or more, more so the case with females. Um, they tend oftentimes to compete as a way of like actually following through. It's like a reason for them to actually start to lose weight. And then they get there and then they rebound and gain more than where they yeah. started. Uh, so in that sort of a situation, it might be smarter to do something more like a reverse diet and see how long you can you know, maintain what it is you worked so hard for. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing. A lot of people see it as like I dieted for 20 weeks, got to this shape, and then I gained it back in one, which is fine by me because, you know, like I said, I prefer to be a little bit bigger and I just compete for the competition. Like I, yeah. the, the show date is what I'm preparing for. That's what I did the 20 weeks for basically. Um, but not everyone is like that. So yeah, like you said, it, you know, it's very going to be very individual. What I'm not a fan of is the long drawn out reverse diets for like, as I see it, no reason. It's like, why keep someone in that condition? Uh, if it isn't a goal of theirs or like, um, if there's no good reason, like if they don't have another show coming up or photo shoot or something like that, there's just no reason to do it. It's like, it's like, an, it's like it's fun for some people to see how high they can get their calories after the show while maintaining shredded glutes. But yeah. it's like, it, even if your calories are high, you probably still feel really crappy if you're that lean. So I think that the recovery diet is like a good middle ground for most people where you can kind of like bump your calories back to maintenance, start putting on some fats, you're recovering faster and you know kind of accept that that's like a, a necessary evil if you see it as a bad thing and then just sort of like allow things to come back into balance with your hunger mm -hmm. from there um i like to be a little bit more aggressive some people like to be a little bit more conservative but i think ultimately it comes down to the individual like some people i will titrate their carbs back in pretty slowly because i know that maybe one they didn't quite get stage lean so maybe they weren't suffering the same ill effects in their training that sort of thing or two like i said it might be really important to them to like maintain some iota of the shape that they brought to the stage and so you just be more careful with that person awesome some really good points there jeff and i wanted to ask you if you have incorporated diet breaks personally into a contest prep for yourself in the past, and if so, how have you done that? I'm trying to think. Um, I think I have, but not for longer than like maybe like a four day uh, mm -hmm. refeed, like when traveling. I think in my pro debut, I did like a four day diet break when I went to the Olympia or something like that. Um, but other than that, uh, I don't think I've done it because. Historically, I've done more of like a shorter but more aggressive contest prep, which yeah. is 
a little bit more fringe in the natural, mm-hmm. I should say natural science-based community. People yeah. tend to do like uber long preps. Um, I'm personally not as much of a fan of those um, and I haven't used them as much personally. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the downsides of not taking that approach is you don't always have time to do mm-hmm. a week or two week long diet break. Um, but I've seen in so many like other people and even with some of my clients that it, it can be effective, um, especially psychologically. Um, I'm not 100% sold on the physiological uh, effects of doing those um, for everyone, but you can usually tell when it's warranted. It's like their adherence is mm. kind of in the balance, yeah. like they're kind of starting to get a little bit shaky with that and their performance is really starting to tank. It's like, okay, you know, we've still got 12 weeks, you're doing well, you're on track. It's like now would be a good time to hit you with that diet break and then you might feel really motivated to dig after that rather than just like we've been digging for 24 weeks nonstop. Yeah. Uh, it can be a bit overbearing. And I wanted to just uh, – Build on what you just brought up, how you are a fan of a you know a little bit shorter, more aggressive contest prep because you're exactly right. In the natural science-based community, that's you know almost frowned upon these days. You know you should be doing a you know six nine month contest prep because you know that's the best way to do it, and you know we need to go slow to retain lean mass. And it's funny that you brought that up because I'm very much the same. I find personally as well that I can adhere to a diet better when I know that it's closer, um, you know, in terms of the time frames. Um, obviously, with other things in life, it's hard to be in a calorie deficit for six months versus, exactly. you know, three to four months if you can do it, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, of course. So, like, I think in my eyes, a lot of the the guys who do the really long preps, and don't get me wrong, like, they work. Like, you look at the guys, they get really, really shredded, and they win shows, and a lot of them are pros. It's the way a lot of people diet, but I do notice that they tend to start out fatter than they need to be. Mm. Um, I would advise, like, you know, my future self or someone who, you know, can get lean a little bit more quickly um, to just stay a bit leaner in your off season and then start the diet a bit later. Um, it's like, and even if people do that, I find they may stay very lean in the off season and still run a six month diet because that's become the accepted time frame for yeah. a science-based natural or what have you. Um, I would say if you spent that extra bit of diligence in your off season staying leaner, then you should be able to reward yourself right with like yeah. a shorter contest right? you should be able to get away with that um historically bodybuilders have been able to get ready for contests in 12 to 16 weeks um mind you they're using substances that might be banned in natural organizations but for all that i still know naturals who have been able to get ready in that amount of time or less uh, it's just that they start out leaner and another advantage of that is like you're able to stay lean and kind of like jack your calories up at that leaner body weight and just kind of get comfortable really comfortable there for a while and so then you kind of just like settle into it that's what i found anyway um and then you don't tend to have these like really long and pronounced like swings in body weight and body fat it tends to be a little bit more stable if you can do it um of course for some people it just could be so genetically overridden that like they just have to go up 30 pounds of, of their stage weight it's the only way they can be comfortable and the only way their their hunger can return to normal and that might be the case uh but if if you like we said you know like if you can do it shorter like why not why put yourself through all of that that misery for so long so 
Um, yeah, that's basically what I think there. And I feel like uh, a large part of that recommendation to do the like very slow, like lose half a percent of your body weight per week or whatever it is, um, comes from a few of these case studies that we have where, um, if you compare them, generally the slower rate of loss is associated with less lean mass loss. Mm -hmm. So the argument's made that if you diet too quick and you lose weight too fast, yeah. then you're going to lose more lean mass. But that assumes that you have a lot of lean mass to lose. If you stay leaner, you might be able to lose it at that rate of you know, yeah. 0.5 to 1% per week and still get there fine. You might not lose as much muscle mass. There's nothing it seems like to me, obviously, there's nothing inherent in a shorter prep that makes it more susceptible to muscle loss, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then even further than that, you know, we have basically three case studies. It's just three data points. That's it. Yeah. And they're not well controlled for. Like that they did different types of cardio. Enough. They did different types of cardio, different training programs. They all like had different approaches to like uh, their like the linear nature of like their caloric drops and like protein intake, fat intake, like nothing was similar amongst them. But yet people feel confident pinning down that it's the duration of the diet that determined how much lean mass they lost. Yeah. Um, I really just don't think that there's enough literature to say that. And so like you just have to decide it basically on yourself. Like how long are you comfortable mm. feeling low energy and having these like depressed moods and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. How, how, like what's the cost benefit analysis for you? Like, is it worth it yeah. to be doing that? Since for me, I just don't think it is, especially given that I've been successful with a shorter one in the past. Um, so yeah, it's basically what works for you, I guess. I really, really enjoyed that response. Um, <laughs> I, I think that that brings up a really good point about, you know, making things work for the individual and you know sometimes where there's gaps in the literature in terms of what we know in practice and what will actually work which leads me into one of my other questions jeff you know your roots are founded in the you know bro splits and have been inspired by your your parents training methodologies what are some of your favorite ways that you unleash the inner bro while still adopting <laughs> a evidence-based approach to your training and do you feel this is beneficial for your enjoyment of training and, you know, what works for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I, I feel like the evidence-based sphere has been sort of, like, pigeonholed mm. into being, you know, moderate volume, yeah. uh, focus on sets. power lifts, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but I, like I kind of said, like, I feel like there's so many gaps in the literature that, like, we need to be much more humble in making our like practical recommendations based on literature alone. And so that's why I give so much credence to just real world experience, like what you've done in the past that's worked or what other people who have gotten impressive results have done. And I found that like, you know, obviously genetics are a huge factor, but bro splits have been very effective just as one example for a lot of people natural or otherwise. And it's a common misconception in my opinion that they only work for people who take steroids, but that is generally touted by people who aren't going to natural bodybuilding shows because mm -hmm. I compete at these shows and you ask people how they train and a yeah. lot of people are not evidence-based. Like a lot of the best people yeah. are not evidence-based. No yeah. doubt they have the best genetics, but that just further undermines how important exactly. it is to do that you know, moderate volume three, two, three times a week training split further. Uh, just means that genetics is just 
going to override it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that keeping training fun is really, really important. Um, that, of course, isn't to undermine like the importance of progression, progressive overload, and frequency, and all of that yeah. stuff. Like All of those acute training variables, of course, come into play. And, like There's enough research to know that like all else being equal... Mm. It's better to do, you know, twice a week than once a week. It's it's better to ensure that there's like a progressively overloading tense like mm-hmm. tension stimulus on the muscle and like all of that stuff. So like you can keep that into account. Um, but I don't get too caught up in make like having that as like my only way of training. Um, I will train intuitively, uh, you know, quite often, especially when it comes to like accessory movements. Um, I find that like paying more attention to things like mind muscle connection, mm-hmm. um, has made a difference in my training. Um, maybe at times getting a little bit more loose with my form to crank out a couple extra reps. Yep. Uh, I probably trained to failure more than a lot of people in the, maybe the, the science-based community, uh, do or advocate for, um, especially on like single joint movements and stuff yep. like that. So, um, yeah, those are things that just keep training really fun and interesting to me. Yeah. Like, I love to train. And if I were to take, I feel like what some people take, which is like how, and I'm sure like this isn't, this is like a little bit of a straw man probably on my end, but like some folks I do notice seem to try to get away with the least amount that they can do to get the minimum result mm-hmm. that they need kind of thing. It's yeah. like, uh, I guess it's sort I of like in line with like the minimum effective dose mm-hmm. philosophy, but, um, basically, yeah, it's like, it's like, what's the most efficient way I can do this? Like, how can I do this in the least amount of time or doing the least amount of exercises and still get that same result? Whereas for me, even if it gives me like a slight little bit of extra, I'd rather do more. I love training anyway. Yeah. I'd rather train knowing I sort of gave it my all. And I guess that that's, you know, gave it my all when appropriate. I'm not like one of these like train till you puke kind of advocates, <laughs> right? But yeah. um, I just find that like it's pretty common across athletics. Like when I was in Taekwondo, it would be common for me to, you know, train to the point of just like exhaustion or like in mm-hmm. basketball, you'd like run lines until you literally did puke. And like, I feel like those sorts of things, if nothing else, at least from like a discipline perspective, teach you to just be a better athlete generally. And when you go to these shows and you look at the guys at the top, not always, but very often, they do have that like grind, push it Mm. type mentality. And so I find that embracing that just makes me a better bodybuilder or at least least a bodybuilder who's like more personally engaged with my training and with the process. So I think that's, that's pretty important. Definitely. I, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for enjoyment of training. And I think sometimes in the evidence-based community, we lose sight of that, um, you know, in trying to achieve what is optimal, we, you know, forget what is also enjoyable, may not be optimal, and finding that balance is extremely important. And lately, you've yeah. been doing a lot of work with uh, Josh Vogel and paying <laughs> a lot of uh, attention to execution of movements, isolation of muscles, and, you know, potentially novel exercise cues. How beneficial yep. do you think this has been for your, you know, knowledge and improving you as a bodybuilder? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, <laughs> I honestly would say it's probably, like, a pretty small piece of it just because, 
like I said, like there are just so many other factors that like you can't isolate one thing and say like this has made all the difference. Like this has brought me from here to here. I'm pretty realistic about like what individual acute training variables can do for a physique given everything else that's involved with how you look, right? It's not like it's, it's as simple as powerlifting where you just have these three lifts yeah. and it's all about getting better at those three lifts. Yeah. With bodybuilding, it's like the shape of your muscles and like how they insert on your skeleton and everything. And so like well, to well, think that one little thing is going to totally override all of that stuff is just like a, a bit of a pipe dream in my opinion. But um, as far as Josh and like that training style goes, I think that it has helped me in a few ways. Um, for one, it's helped me establish, and I think this is probably the most important thing, establish a better mindless connection when I train, mm -hmm. slow down the cadence a little bit. Um, they do a lot of like training in the act, what I think they call the active range. So it's mm -hmm. like, I don't think that they allow it to necessarily come all the way down. There's a lot of training more on like that three quarters yep. of the way up to down sort of thing. Um, and so I found that that is good. Like you can get a very good pump training that way. Uh, there's a lot of focus on mind muscle connection and I think that these are just like more tools to sort of like add to your toolkit yes. to make you more versatile as a bodybuilder mm. and so I wouldn't personally do it for exercises like say squats or like other heavy compound movements mm -hmm. like my bench press like I still am going to tuck my elbows on that I'm still going to train it with an arch like and that could be my power lifter bias coming through but for a lot of exercises that might be more single joint or maybe more like isolation in nature, like a dumbbell press, for example, or whatever, I will definitely apply those cues. And I think that activation is actually really important. Like we have all this EMG research showing us that like, okay, uh, hip thrusts lead to more glute activation than the squat. Well, one thing that at least internally I feel leads to a lot more activation is being mindful of what muscle you're using. And so I feel like it should be given more credence than mm. perhaps it is uh, at, in the science-based community just because I don't, I'm not, a, I mean, I know there are some, but there's probably not a big body of literature on mind-muscle connection. So it's kind of written off as bro, but yeah, you do it, it works. So it, it makes sense to me. So, but other, apart from those things, which are like physiologically based, it's a really fun and different way to train. Mm -hmm. And if there's another thing that we know about training science, it's that novelty really matters. It's like all of the periodization literature arguably comes down to creating a novel stimulus in specific blocks. Yeah, so yeah. if that's a new way of training, it's probably presenting a new type of stimulus for growth. And I've never been more sore than after sessions yeah. training with Josh. And even though soreness may not be the perfect proxy for muscle growth, mm -hmm. it's certainly a good indication of activating specific muscles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if activation matters, then I would say soreness is a, probably a good gauge of that, and then that probably makes a difference, right? Uh, so, yeah. For sure. I really, um, I really see the merit in you know trying different things as a bodybuilder, but not completely overriding what fundamentally works. You know, it's a piece mm -hmm. to the puzzle that you know, and a tool in the toolbox. And my final question to you today, Jeff, is we are doing the 10,000 calorie challenge this Sunday, <laughs> uh, which has been inspired by you. So, oh no, that's a horrible yes. influence. Well, I'm not something. doing it, thank goodness. It's my, uh, oh. my brother and my business partner, Sam. So he's the one that's <laughs> going to be chowing down the food. And okay. he um, wanted to know, what were some things that you learned from this and, you know, was there anything that it taught you practically, uh, Jeff? 
Yeah, there's actually a bunch of stuff. I feel like this is actually a really useful learning tool because my video got something like uh, between three and four hundred thousand views, which wow. means it, it reached it reached a lot of people. Right. Um, and my girlfriend's got Stephanie's. Her got hers got in a couple weeks, like over half a million. Um, so these videos go super viral if you market them properly. Yeah. Um, and so you're able to reach a lot of people with science, which I think is a positive thing because if you saw my video, I basically did my best to estimate how much fat I could gain as a result of doing this mm -hmm. um, because you see the before and afters and it's like people are like ripped and then it's just like massive <laughs> pregnant it's belly after, right? And I think people are maybe given the impression that like if they do this or even if they do something similar to it, like say for Thanksgiving or on Christmas or whatever, mm -hmm. and they have that really heavy, like calorically dense day that they're going to undo all of the results. And I think that that is really kind of not the case. Like in my experience, things yeah. kind of came back to balance into balance pretty quickly. And I noticed at least visually my physique looked you know, more or less the same after a few days mm -hmm. and certainly after a week, um, assuming you know, my diet returned to normal. Um, so what I did was my calculation and I kind of like accounted for like changes in meat, which I might've overestimated a little bit. I've gotten a bit of pushback on that one, but also like accounted for like the thermic effect of food and just like, um, basal meta or resting metabolic rate, like just factored in all of the, the different components and came out with, I think about like an estimated half a pound to like 0.6 of a pound yeah. of fat gain. Um, that was a total just like hypothesis, like a rough, like back of the envelope calculation. My girlfriend then went and actually got all the data. Like she measured her body fat percentage before, yeah. like the day before the challenge and then the day after the challenge or the morning of the challenge maybe and then the day after yeah. the challenge and then 48 hours after. And <clears throat> she found that she gained according to those measurements, I think it was – I think it was initially like two pounds of fat. So it was like a lot more than yeah. I had anticipated. And that could be due to the fact that her resting metabolic rate was like just over a thousand calories a day, right? It's like pretty yeah. low. Mine yeah. was like 2,000 calories a day. So that's a thousand calories right there. Yeah. Um, and then if there's anything else we know about the literature is that there's like massive individual variability in how they upscale or downscale their meat mm -hmm. in response to overfeeding. So like some people's meat, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis, so like basically how much you move around during the day, will actually go down when they overfeed. So like their body like doubles down and makes it worse <laughs> for them. Yeah. Um, other days. people will go way up. Like it might go up like 700 calories a day in response to like overfeeding. Mm -hmm. Mind you, this is chronic overfeeding. Um, so it, those differences could be like so significant in that kind of thing. Um, but what she, and then the other thing I should say is that the methods used to measure this are not the most sensitive. Mm -hmm. So like there's a, a large degree of error in them, yeah. but for all that two pounds, is still quite a lot of fat. Like if you looked at that, it would be like, but then after 48 hours, I think it went back down another pound or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then after two weeks though, she still had that extra pound of fat. Um, mind you, she wasn't really like eating at maintenance or in a deficit or anything. It's just kind of intuitive eating. So yeah. it could just be that she just kind of continued to eat in a slight surplus or at maintenance and just didn't come back. But in any case, um, the effects I think, especially visually are not perhaps not as big as people think. So like one day of overfeeding is going to, you know, top of your glycogen, you're going to gain a bunch of water weight. Mm -hmm. Like she gained like two liters of water yeah. um, and then lost it all right away. Like the yeah. next, like two days later, it was all gone again. Yeah. So your body weight will return to normal. Things will re-equilibrate. It's like kind of nothing to worry about as long as it's not continued over time. Um, so that was probably like the most uh, important thing that it taught me. Yeah. But in terms of 
doing it if you want to talk about Any that. practical tips? Um, there's a lot of strategy. Um, so I did it in the dumbest way possible. You started eating really late, didn't you? I started, I ate late. I didn't have it planned at all. I didn't have any idea like what foods to eat or like how I was going to do it. <laughs> really. You always say uh, which, which is the biggest mistake to make. Whereas like when my girlfriend did it, like, she learned from my mistakes. She had three different possible contingencies planned out. So like if this meal, if she didn't want this, she could have this. And like she had like three different wow. things planned out in my fitness pal to hit 10,000 calories. Um, yeah, exactly. So I would recommend planning it like ahead of time as much as you can. Um, mm -hmm. That might take away from the fun of it for some people, but I feel like she had way more fun doing it than I did. So yeah. uh, it's probably better to do it that way. <laughs> you didn't look like and then fun. you want to wake up really early and start eating really early, like mm -hmm. get a lot of calories tucked away earlier in the day and then train, which will like, kind of stimulate your appetite a little bit. Um, don't nap. If, if you can't avoid it because like napping just takes away hours of your day and you might just go into a coma for like four hours and then you wake up with no appetite <laughs> so try to train stay awake and think of like maybe if you really want to like watch people who've been successful with it on youtube and like look at meals that they had and then kind of like copy them or like draw inspiration from them rather than like don't look at what I did, for example. Yeah. Like, I ate, like, chicken breast for meal three. <laughs> right, so, um, yeah. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time today. I had a lot of fun doing that interview, uh, Jeff. Thank you for your time, and we'll speak Absolutely. to you next time. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Jacob.